Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Manmeet Magu, co-founder and CEO of Trexo Robotics. His commitment to helping children with cerebral palsy walk drove the vision for Trexo Robotics and continues to guide his leadership style within the company. Hello, welcome to the Deep Tech Show. I'm really happy to have you here. Mamit is the founder of Trexo Robotics and is tackling one of the most important problems that I think we have today in health with robotics. So tell us a little bit more about the future, how the future looks like when you guys are wildly successful. Hi, Edmar. Really happy to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's many different ways to look at the future. And specifically, the lens that I'm looking at it from is the lens of ability versus disability of the human. And first, let me, I guess, contextualize the problem a little bit. Whether you're born with a disability, whether you get into an unfortunate accident, or you're simply getting old, Lack of mobility is something that everyone is going to face at some point in their life. And today, essentially, options are really limited. And if you extrapolate that into the future and you think about what the future might hold from a first principles perspective, it reasons out that, you know, anybody that wishes to walk should have the ability to do so, whether it's someone that is, you know, just getting old and need some assistance to walk, whether it is someone that was not born with that ability. And that's kind of how I see the future play out specifically around, you know, if you think about things like the elderly population is a good example here. It's the fastest growing population group in the world. Pretty soon, the elderly population group is going to overtake the younger population group. There's something that already has happened in Japan. It just happened in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I see that in, in the United States, I think by 2030, I think they would have more people over 65 than teenagers and children there already. Already. It's this statistic yeah. that I saw a while ago. So it's going to be a huge problem. It's going to be soon. It's not like something that's going to happen like in 100 years or so. So Exactly. It's actually, it's called the 2030 problem. This is actually a name assigned to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Didn't and know as that. that happens, the healthcare costs are just going to continue to exponentially rise. So you think about a future that we're headed in where, you know, the people that need care is way more than the people that are able to provide care. And so the natural thing happens is like, how is that going to, how is this sort of a situation going to be solved? And the natural answer is that you have to look towards technological solutions to enable that. So that's kind of how I see the future playing out where, you know, exoskeletons or mobility devices will be that are effortless and not only are restoring human function, but actually enabling and accelerating human function or amplifying human function to a greater degree than what is today possible naturally. And how you guys are doing that today? In what stage that the technology you are developing is in right now? Yeah, so today the stage we are at is a small step towards that direction. And at Trexo Robotics, what we are doing is we're building wearable robotic legs 
that help children with disabilities learn to walk in many cases for the first time in their lives. So any child that is, that might be born with a disability or acquire a disability like, and this can range, but the most common one generally is cerebral palsy. Then of course, there is traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injury, spinal bifida, spinal muscular atrophy, and a long tail of many rare genetic conditions. So children that are born or acquire a disability and, you know, as as a result of which generally are unable to walk, we're creating pretty much the first commercial robotic legs that can attach onto the child's leg and just have them walk around on a daily basis. How do you track like a problem like the growth of the kid? Because I imagine that like you get like, the, like suppose that he's like seven, eight years old and you get one, but by the time they get like to 10 or 11, you know, You've got to keep growing and growing. This seems to be a hard problem to tackle. Yeah, essentially, of course, it's something we think about a lot. And the way we've tackled this is there's few different sizes. So we have a small size, large, medium, small, medium, large, extra large. Within those sizes, the, the Trexo is adjustable. So to give you some rough age groups based on the height, a small size is from ages one to three, medium is three to six, large is six to 12 and extra large is 12 and up. So within those, it's adjustable, but then past a certain point, the family can upgrade to a larger size. And the way we offer the Trexo technology is what most of our customers are doing is actually raffling like a, a like a lease plan. So a family can get the Trexo for $1,000 a month. And, you know, it makes sense for a family because people don't want to spend, you know, $35,000 only to have the child grow out of the device in two years. So this ensures that, you know, as they're paying, they could just be upgraded and move to the next size up. So you're doing like, like more like a service in the end, like they are like paying for this exactly. long row of it. Yeah. This is interesting. Like, did you deploy it already or test it already or you're in development phase? What phase you are with the tech right now? Yeah. So we are. We're selling commercially in North America. So we're approved for sale in US and Canada. So we're registered under FDA as a class two device and registered with Health Canada as a class one device. We have hundreds of devices in the field right now, all over North America and hundreds more in the backlog. Actually, we just crossed a very interesting milestone. The Trexel in the field combined have taken 20 million steps, Oh, which is enough to walk around the earth once. Oh, this is so, so cool. Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing to imagine that children that were not able to walk or could or had a lot of difficulty walking have together walked across the earth once. Oh, this is cool. This is cool. And where does did this idea came from? Like how did you start it? Like yeah. and when? Yeah, so the company started by my co-founder Rahul and I. Both of us have a background in robotics. We studied mechatronics engineering from Waterloo and then worked in the industry for a few years, building hardware and robotics devices. And then after that, I did my MBA from UFT, University of Toronto, and Rahul did his master's in robotics from there as well. Rahul's master's thesis was actually on robotic devices for children with cerebral palsy. But the idea for Trexel actually started through a very personal need. A few years ago, I found out that my nephew, Pranit, was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And we learned that he would never be able to walk. So generally, you're not aware of the space at all until you're thrust into it. 
And as we were thrust into it, we started exploring and we realized a lot of things. Like first thing we realized was that the impact that not walking can have on quality of life, just being in a wheelchair, but past the quality of life, there's also many physiological changes that are happening as well. They say sitting eight hours a day on your desk is bad for your health. Imagine how bad it is for a child spending their entire life in the wheelchair and growing in the wheelchair. So there's complications like, you know, contractures in the legs, hip subluxation, reduced blood flow, reduced kidney function, reduced bowel movement, pressure sore, reduced bone density. It's a long, nasty list. And then there's all the management of all that, I imagine. So because of that, the child will need to take a lot of meds and a lot of treatments to counterbalance that probably, right? So there's still not only that, but there's still the effect of the treatments that you need to do to counterbalance that as well. So it's really complex when you think about it. It is. It's actually, I mean, walking is such an essential component of human life that we don't really realize its effects until it's taken away from you. You know, I'll give you an example. In many cases, what happens is whenever a child, any child, when we're born, um, so the hip bone is like a hip, is like a ball and socket joint. But when a child is born, the socket is not fully developed. It's relatively flat. And as the child undergoes walking at an early age, that's when that hip redevelopment happens and the socket starts to develop. For children with disabilities like cerebral palsy, they never get to that walking stage. So that redevelopment of the hip never happens. So they actually have a flat socket. And then over time, your hip starts to sublex until it fully dislocates, which is fairly common in in kids that are severely affected with CP. And for that, you need a pelvic osteotomy surgery, which not only is like an $80,000 cost to the insurance, but then past that, there's it's extremely painful and there's management of that. And that's just one of, you know, this being a really long host. And like another surprising one, a very interesting one is actually just cardiovascular. Kids that are severely affected with cerebral palsy, they're not actually getting um, any physical activity, especially yeah. if you are in a wheelchair and you don't even have upper body strength to control your body. So, you know, pulmonary and cardiovascular is like the top two causes of mortality in kids severely affected with CP. And so these are like, some of these numbers are really surprising. And there's all of these network and ripple effects that are all happening as a result of not walking, which is kind of what happened in our case. Like as we started exploring this further, we realized, wow, okay, this is clearly a problem. And, you know, being robotics engineers, we were like, hey, let's just buy him a, let's just buy my nephew a, a robotic device. How hard can that be? So, You know, like any family member, we start researching and looking around what's available and pretty soon realize there's just nothing out there. There were some adult devices like adult exoskeletons, but the needs of kids are so different that you cannot just shrink one down and use it for kids. The closest device was this thing called the Locomat, which cost half a million dollars. Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) Yeah. As you look at that, we're like, wow, why is this so expensive? And that's where we said, you know what? We're robotics engineers. We're probably in the best position to build something. For my nephew, so we're like, let's let's go ahead and change the and status. Why why the other device was so expensive? Like, it's like um, we're talking about almost like sports car price um, level price. I mean, there there's a few different reasons. In general, it comes down to the business model, and there's a few different things. Like, 
recently we've, we've had an inflection point in where in where the cost of you know brushless motors battery technology has significantly come down and you've now reached an inflection point where these things are really possible now you know with the advent of the drones and the scooters uh, we've really seen that happen in states so that's been a that's been a part of it and another part of it has been you know what was possible 10 years ago was restricted to you know a clinical research setting where as a company, you know you're only going to sell maybe 20 devices at a time. So you have to basically charge a high enough price to get yeah. a decent enough margin in the end to justify building a company of that. So now you're reaching a point where you're getting these economies of scale. And then there's some other cool things that we are doing in our technology that have accelerated us forward in terms of bringing the price down significantly. But at least that was kind of the motivation, which was like, let's build something for my nephew. So we kind of jumped into it. And built a prototype, packed it up to, in a suitcase, took it to India where my nephew is, and I tried it out with him. And at first it failed, <laughs> it just did not work and had to make changes at the time. It was pretty uh, depressing initially when just did not work and like, oh my God, we spent all these months yeah. trying to build this for him. Made a few small, made, a, made some changes to the whole device, got it to like barely work where, you know, it's kind of moving his legs for him. But like he's still in the air. But it kind of proved to us that it can be done. That's kind of where. I, how does the kid controls the device? Like how the yeah how they can control it? So in terms of the way this product is designed right now, is basically intended for the caregiver to have full control on the device. And one of the reasons for that is, of course, safety. And the other reason is children that it have that have severe disabilities might not have the necessary cognitive ability to be able to control the device in all case scenarios. So the way the device works is it's controlled to a tablet that is basically in the hands of the caregiver. And so they have primary control on it. Past that, you know, the device has sensors in it where it's detecting the effort that the child is providing versus, oh, versus resisting. So the child's input is being taken into account and we're getting feedback onto the tablet as if like, you know, this, let's say, for example, a child is really helping with the walking. You'll see an initiation score going up, showing that, okay, this child is actively participating. Versus if the child is, you know, completely disengaged, you'll see that score coming down. And similarly, if the child is, doesn't want to move, they're resisting. You'll see that both physically on the device, we have like lights on each joint that just light up orange, which means that, okay, the child is resisting the movement here and they light up blue when the child is assisting the movement. So you have an immediate visual indicator mm -hmm. on how the, the child the, is interacting. And the um, caregiver can adapt what he's doing with the child and what he's communicating or he or she's communicating and what it's doing because this, yeah, th this is the thing that I didn't thought about because this data is really useful when you think about it, right? Like this, to, you can personalize what you are doing with the kid because you know, you would know, you probably would not know otherwise without this info, if, even if you're doing a more like, let's say like a physiotherapy or something like that, it's very hard to get data at this level of. That's yeah, the other interesting thing where, you know, today the state of physiotherapy is, you know, very, very subjective. It's, it's hard to quantify it. It's hard to have a data driven. We've basically taken that and flipped it completely on its head where, you know, you know, on one end, you're getting session data of like during the session, exactly how the child is walking. 
but then you're even getting like a full dashboard view of the child where the caregiver or the physical therapist can actually see that, okay, you know, over the past year, um, this child has been doing, started off by doing 500, a session of 500 steps. And now they've gone up to doing 3000 steps or 10,000 steps in a session. And their initiation used to be at 15%. And now we've seen that progression up. So changing the treatment plan or changing, you know, making it constant, making the child constantly work harder and kind of having that progressive effect through a data-driven approach, which is key. And it could even like maybe used like as a alert as well. Like if you have like the kid and you're seeing all the metrics and it's improving and then stop improving or get worse, maybe something is happening as well, right? Because it's, it could be a sign of some other underlying thing that's happening that you need to check it out as well, right? Before anything else. Exactly, yeah. So that's kind of helpful there. You know, all of our customers, we will generally have a regular check-ins with them and we're kind of reviewing this data together. So there might be things that we can work on based on that data or, yeah, other changes or other points that we can bring up. And going a little bit back more into the past, tell us a little bit more about why becoming like a robotics engineer. Like, why did you decide to take this path? Like, how did it start? Yeah, I think so. My dad is an engineer himself. He has his own company where he was building basically machines for the steel industry. And I've kind of grown up watching him. So I was always interested in not just engineering, but the concept of, you know, electrical, mechanical, software all coming together. And you're practically creating something out of nothing. So I joined Mechatronics Engineering in Waterloo because... You know, I kind of like mechanical, I like electrical, I like software, everything a little bit. So I was like, mechatronics seems cool. So went into it. But then first year in mechatronics, I have, we had this like mini sumo robot competition. And, you know, we built these like small little robots that would compete on a mini sumo ring. And I just fell in love with the idea of building robots. Like that was the big trigger for me where I just... This, it just wasn't work at all. It was just so much fun building robots. And that was, that's when I was like, okay, you know, this is what I want to do. This is really what I want to do for the rest of my life is kind of build robots. And kind of when the opportunity came for building something for Pranit, it was like, you know, I'm building something for him and I get to build robots. That's like the best <laughs> of both worlds. So it was yeah. a no brainer at that point. Yes. Helping family and at the same time helping the kids and at the same time playing with robots. Yeah, it's pretty it's sounds like a plan. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And did you guys raise a round of venture capital or you were still only like the founders? Oh yeah. We went through Y Combinator, we went through Techstars, actually, both of both incubator programs. So out of Techstars, we did a pre-seed round and then went through YC. Pretty much after YC is when we went commercial and then did a seed round. And then last year, we did another seed extension. This is interesting. It's quite uncommon to see someone that went to both YC and Techstars. Like, why? <laughs> yeah, it's actually pretty rare. I mean, I think I've, yeah. I haven't heard of another company that's gone through both Techstars and YC with the same company. 
Yeah. Not by plan. Basically, so, yeah. went like to tech stars in like New York, I think, or it's in Boulder, I think, or wasn't. So it? yeah, we went through the IoT program in TechStars, which was in New York. So yeah, I went through TechStars, raised a pre-seed round, and kind of were on the path towards bringing this product to commercialization. And along that route, basically, I engaged with some partners from YC, just getting some advice. I spoke to Sam Altman, or I actually had been in touch with Sam Altman for some time spoke to Eric Majikovsky and they just had good ideas. They had really good advice and they kind of proposed, they're like, have you considered applying to YC? And I said, no, I mean, I've already done an accelerator. So I don't think so. And then they're like, why not? I, you know, there is no real thing that you can only be have done one accelerator program. So that's kind of where it started. And I was, <laughs> considered it and then applied for it. And then, yeah. Rest is yeah. history. Yeah, this is interesting. And one thing that I see a lot in deep tech, like when you compare to like more like traditional, let's say software startups, is that like the road to getting customers or getting to commercialization is, is, it's more time. So you don't have the advantage of having early signals like early revenue or the customer is really hard to have because you need to like the development of the product is, takes more and it's hard like and how did you demonstrate traction if you are in still like basically in this like product development phase for extended time yeah no good point and it is so true that you can't take a prototype start collecting revenue <laughs> with the deep tech company so i mean what we ended up doing was had a very basic prototype early on with which we started talking to customers. Thankfully, we got Health Canada registration much sooner than FDA. And just with an early prototype, we signed our first customer. Not necessarily like delivered a product to them, but we signed our first customer, which was a clinic in London, Ontario. And then past that, what we started doing was to demonstrate this traction, we basically started talking to some of the top hospitals in North America. So Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Spalding in Boston, and early on, what we started collecting was just letters of intent. So the LOI is like the closest thing you can get to without actually getting a contract, especially if you don't have FDA at that point. So it, it just kind of gave a little bit of a signal of, you know, there is interest in the market for what these guys are building. And so that was kind of what we did for pre-seed. For the seed round, it was more around, you know, by that time we had actually launched and started getting some pre-sales and reservations from customers. So we actually had like, we still hadn't delivered product, but we had early traction, early signals that, you know, customers want this product, so putting down a deposit, reserving their tracks. And then we had some beta customers where, you know, we were actually demonstrating that the device works and it can be used in the family's home setting. And how long did it take to get like FDA approval for a device like, like yours? So I guess it depends. Like for us, it took us a long time to just planning the strategy out for FDA. So we had a regulatory consultant kind of working with us for quite some time into what that pathway might look like, who's going to be our predicate device, what category are we going to exactly fit in. So that is what took like the longest time. But once we determined what strategy we're going after and what we're going to fit in, after that, it was fairly quick for us. Yeah. And do you have any advice for someone starting a deep tech company? Like what would you your input be? Yeah, I mean, advice is, can be for many different things, but one would be try to de-risk 
the idea as quickly as you can. And again, there's many different ways that you can de-risk it. One way is building a prototype, you know, to de-risk the product, like can this product actually work? And then the other risk generally is the market risk. Like, are people going to adopt it? Are people going to be interested in this? So until you have regulatory approval, you can't actually sell the product. But before that, you can actually get some interest through LOI. So that can be a good way to de-risk the market. So yeah, like try to accelerate these milestones and like bring them as earlier as you can. That's generally going to be helpful, not just in raising capital, but it's going to be helpful for you because the best way to build a startup is like get as much feedback or get feedback from customers as quickly as you can. Like one of the things that, you know, Paul Graham says from the get-go is like, you don't want to be constantly in this R&D phase. You want to be going out to customers and talking to them, which I think is just super. Yeah, it makes sense. So even though it's going to take you maybe, let's say in a worst case scenario, five years to get commercial, you need to be talking to customers. You need to be closing that feedback loop and kind of making sure what you're building is actually the right thing that people want. Yeah, make, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And what did surprise you the most after you started this company? Like what do you was unexpected for you and that you, after you started to learn or something that you got to know after you started? I mean, when was I building robots is hard. <laughs> 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 and building these four that children are going to wear and walk with every day in their homes is even harder. And it's not just that, you know, it's a really complex actuator that you have to build. That's just the beginning. There's like multiple layers of complex. Like one small example is like just the comfort. You know, if a child is wearing this device and is not comfortable, they're going to let you know right away. You know, they're not going to sit in this thing for more than five minutes. So you know, the amount of time that you have to devote and the amount of engineering and, and R&D that you have to devote to just making this thing comfortable is quite high. And so those were kind of things that we realized over time. And then the next layer, of course, was like, you know, easy to build a prototype. Then when you get into production, that's again, yeah, that's another layer of complexity where things that work now that, you know, once you're in production, then things start to break and then you have to, you can't just rely on, it's not just a copy paste from the prototype to production. So yeah. yeah. And what people tend to get wrong about what you are doing, like when you are explaining to investors, customers, media, like what people tend to get wrong about what you're doing is the most common misconception that people tend to have. That's a good question. So I think one of the interesting ones is actually around the price of the product. So, you know, a lot of times or sometimes we have this where someone, a potential customer might hear about the price of the product and say, wow, what is this thing? Like, is this thing made out of gold? Uh, why is this so expensive? Or are you guys just trying to make a quick buck? And, you know, it was interesting because Rahul and I from when, before we even started the company, we had a discussion together, of us, which was like, what is the best way to maximize impact and actually ensure that this device goes out to the hundreds of thousands of children out there? You know, one way is we take the very version 0.1 of the product, just make it open source. Uh, anybody can build it and, and use it. But pretty soon we realize that's going to have zero impact. That's not going to work. The V0.1 is 
practically useless. It's not until we zero, you know, many iterations after it it's commercial. And then it's not just that, it's around product producing this reliability. It's the customer support. It's the R&D. Yeah. And the best way to actually have an impact in this is actually to build, is to build a business around it that can grow sustainably and have bigger and bigger impact and build more company gets bigger, it builds more devices. And, and so economies of scale of as well, right? Yeah, totally. There's big factors of economies of scale. And so generally that's one thing that, you know, everybody doesn't naturally understand that. And so it takes a bit of explaining on that part. Yeah. Yeah. And going to the end, I have like two questions that I like to make to, to everybody. So the first is any books, TV shows, or movie recommendations you have for us? Um, I mean, from a startup perspective, yeah, for sure, Paul Graham essays. It's like the Bible. Yeah. Have you read the book, and The Hackers and Painters one? Yeah, I have. Yeah, that's a good, good one. It's very good as well. Yeah, it's, but it's and just then, a collection, right, of the essays. I think. Pretty much, yeah. And then yeah. two others of my favorite books are Zero to One by Peter Thiel and yeah. The Hard Thing About Hard Things from Ben Harris, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty good one as well. And good. And the second one is if you could send just one message to everybody on earth, what it would be? Oh, well, yeah, maybe I'd say something like, you know, love brings us together. Love keeps, keeps everything moving. So got to focus on that and everything will be okay. Yeah, you have a company that started off love, right? Pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it was a pleasure to talk to you, Mamit. I hope that you guys grow this company a lot and have a lot of success. There's a lot of children out there that would really need what you guys are doing. And even at some point, older people as well. So it's really interesting building robots, having fun and helping people at the same time. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Admire. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.